0: Hello, I'm Eddie Merckx. Welcome to the Velocast.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Velocast analysis for the 2016 Tour de France. With the world teetering as it is on the event horizon of a stupidity black hole, this year's Tour de France really can't come quickly enough, if only for the three weeks of pleasurable distraction it will give us before we have to go back to the soul-crushing insanity of it all. So what then does the 2016 edition have in store for those silly enough to want to race it, and more importantly for us, fans who are desperately in need of being entertained by it? Sit back then, relax and pretend for three weeks that the planet isn't going to hell on a handcart as we walk you through the 103rd edition of The Biggest Bike Show on Earth.
0: Let's face it, mate. Nothing's going to happen for two weeks. It's backloaded, so we might just as well we could go. You know, carry on being depressed.
1: You are an idiot.
0: <laughs> I'm I, also not being serious. Thank I mean, goodness for that. An absolutely fascinating route, and I think uh, you know it, it. It carries on the tradition of just changing things up a wee bit. That's been the mark of, of Christian Prudhomme. Uh, the start is going to be absolute carnage, you know, because uh, you're going to have the winds and everything right through to the second last day where we could conceivably still see the yellow jersey decided with, you know, action peppered all the way in between. So I'm, I'm absolutely gagging for it. I need it. I need it just to make my uh, mind all cheery and cuddly again.
1: <laughs> it's not really been the best couple of weeks or so for, for minds being led down the path of cheeriness and, and loveliness, has it? But putting all that aside... And focusing on, on the race, as we must, no prologue this year as the tour gets underway on the, the north coast of France with the 188 kilometer Stage 1 from Mont-Saint-Michel and then finishing near Utah Beach.
0: Yeah, and I mean, today as we um, you know, mark the 100th anniversary of the, the Battle of the Somme, I think it's, it's appropriate. Um, you know, they, they paid tribute last year to, you know, the battlefields of World War I. But it's appropriate that we we think about the, the turmoil that Europe's been through. And we'll see a lot of those sites in the first stage. But what we'll mostly see is an absolute humdinger of a stage. If it's windy, you're going to have echelons everywhere. You know, you're right near the coast for a, a huge chunk of the stage. In fact, all of it, really. Uh, and, you know, we might see a breakaway because of that. But what's far more likely, I think, is, you know, a proper Sprint Royale. Because there's there's wee hills and wee things that are going to break up the race quite early this year, which means the sprinters won't get the chances that they used to get back in the bad old days of swapping the jersey back and forth for the first week. So they'll all be really, really motivated to get that first yellow jersey and, you know, thrilling. It's the start of the tour. Everybody's absolutely hyped up. We're hyped up. The riders are nervous. You know, they're motivated. And uh, a brilliant parkour for the first stage. Bring it on.
1: And the weather report for tomorrow is indeed for Crosswinds. So Mm -hmm. all of what you said absolutely comes into play. Uh, So are you going to be silly enough uh, to to make a, a prediction on who will take the first yellow jersey then?
0: Well, it's not going to be Mark Cavendish, I'll tell you that, Uh, which, of course, I'm I'm trying my reverse prognostication there in the hope that Mark will show a bit more form than he's shown recently. The the bookie's favourite is got to be uh, Marcel Kittel, isn't it?
1: Mm. So, you know, strangely, I think if there are crosswinds, it could... And an echelons form, I think it actually could play slightly more into the hands of Andre Greipel, being a much more punchier, stronger mm-hmm. sprinter than, than Kettle. But all set up for a, a fantastic opening to to the the tour with with stage two as well. I believe there's rain forecast for for stage two, which has a, a three kilometer long climb to the finish. So more a day for for the the punchers than stage stage one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's where the sprinters are going to see their chances, I think, of of getting the yellow jersey in the first week disappear, which is why they'll be so motivated for stage one. Uh, Stage two has Peter Sagan written all over it, doesn't it? Mm. Um, I mean, I've had a look at the finish online. looked at what other people have said about it, and it really reminds me of, uh, you know, the Mour de Bretagne, which is, is no real surprise because we're in that general area. You know, the kind of roads that made Bernardino the, the rider that he is. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's got to be Sagan or somebody else like that. Who I would love to see come through uh, is, you know, someone like John Degenkolb who's had a bad season and, and get some form.
1: See, can I drag you back just slightly to not even stage one, but obviously you're quite rightly highlighting the fact that it's going to to Utah Beach and and the the commemoration and and the fact we we should look back to the the turmoil in in Europe. Did you see the 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 team presentation last night? Yeah,
0: where they're all in kind of jeeps and stuff. It was brilliant.
1: Well, see, I mean. I've got two things to say here. I think it's a damn disgrace that the team presentation was in commemoration of the D-Day landings and this meant I couldn't, in all consciousness and seriousness, take the piss out of it, which is what <laughs> team presentations are there for. I mean, da- yeah. Damn you, unimaginable suffering and the respect that I must pay for it.
0: Yeah, fighting for freedom, I'm going to mock that furiously. Exactly. It's not going to happen, no, is it? No,
1: exactly. But on a more serious point, well... As I say, it's hugely important that such massively important events are are commemorated and and I think that sport can provide a great backdrop for, for this. Did anyone else feel that having the teams arrive in American troop trucks was just a little bit on the tacky side?
0: No, I quite liked it. but I mean, I, I think we have to bear in mind we're starting with a fairly low bar in terms of, you know, not being tacky. Uh, team presentations are tacky by nature, so I, I, I was fine with it. I really was.
1: Yeah, but I mean, I mean, yes, as I say, D-Day should be and, and can be celebrated as being the beginning of a, a continent being liberated. But I think what's probably more important to remember is that nearly half a million people died that day and I just felt... This isn't the time. But anyway, getting back to, to the race itself. Uh, the next two days after after stage two, so three and four, are back to stages for the sprinters. But stage five, I think, is really interesting. We go to the massive centrale and
0: features the first climbs of this year's event. Yeah, other than that, we blip at the end of stage two. Um, and this is a, a brilliant, brilliant stage. I mean, these are roads which are, are writ large in the history of the Tour de France. And... The one word I would use to describe them is heavy. You know, they're the kind of roads where there's no flat all day. You know, you're up and down. It's really hard to get into a rhythm. And in the last 36 kilometres, there's three climbs, which, you know, they're not the big monsters that you're going to see in the Pyrenees or the Alps. But for me, they look like ideal Alberto Contador territory. I would agree with that.
1: But I would also say that I was, when looking at this, I was reminded of how Chris Froome, arguably won his tour last year by work done in the first week. And of course, mm-hmm. that time it was over the cobbles and, and quite tough you know, conditions in terms of the weather. And you're right to highlight that, that Alberto could do the work he needs to win a tour uh, in, in this stage. Uh, but I think that rivals of Chris Froome need to be very, very attentive here. We, we've seen him do this before, whereby he sets up chipping away at time he needs and you know again going back to last year he sort of faded a wee bit towards mm-hmm. the end and, and maybe Nairo Quintana left it a wee bit too late and it was my opinion that the work that, that Froome as I say had done in the first week was where he won his, his Tour de France so I think stage five is going to be really interesting not for massive time gaps that are going to happen in it but who is prepared to just take a few seconds here and there over, over the first week of the tour
0: the interesting thing for me about that is that the back end of this tour is so hard that we might actually see Froome have have taken a slightly different um, route to fitness you know he might not be right on top of the game this early in the race and you add to that you've got the Olympics coming up later in the year you know you might see guys who are attempting to do the double you know like Froome like uh, Vincenzo Nibali actually trying to, to tweak their form so that they are at their very peak in that really hard last week of the tour and can carry it on into the Olympics, uh, I think the action we see from Team Sky actually will give us a great statement of what's to come. You know, if we see Team Sky trying to boss this stage, then we know that Froome's already feeling good. But I, I do think there are a couple of um, you know clear favourites in this race, which you know we'll we'll discuss after we've discussed the terrain. Um, and one of them for me actually isn't Alberto Contador. You know, he's a level below uh, the guys who who spring to mind first, and that means he's got to be creative, and that's why I mentioned him for this stage.
1: I noticed. I think it was one of the Cycling Weekly jun- journalists, uh, Sophie Smith, mm-hmm. was saying that she had asked Alberto Contador if he had a plan for for all twenty-one stages, and he gave that famous smile of his and said, "Of course."
0: Yeah, of course he has. He's a clever, clever guy. I mean, you know whether it's, um, you know, race tactics on the road or whether it's planning and, and preparation, which uh, it's that horrible word that's got connotations now, um, Alberto is not stupid um, and he will have a plan You know, and he'll have looked at where he thinks his rivals will be strong and he'll try and take them, you know, when they're, they're it's like the Spanish Inquisition, nobody expects it <laughs> That works
1: on many levels actually <laughs> really uh, Moving on uh, Stage 6 essentially is a transition stage which takes us to the perennial. He's coming very early in this year's race in st- uh, stages seven, eight, and nine. Now, stage eight is the first one I want to talk about here because we go from Po and then back around to Bagnères de Luchon climbing the most used climb in the Tour de France, the Tourmalet.
0: Yeah, I mean classic, classic climbs. You know things like the, the Tourmalet um, and, and the Peresord in the stage. It's it's absolutely iconic Pyrenean territory, and. As in common with, you know, we might actually on stage 7 see somebody try to to pull a smart one over the cold-ass man and, you know, down into the finish with that slight rise. But I think you're right to highlight stage 8 because the day before we'll have seen a really clear indication of who's got form. But with those four climbs we're going to have to see somebody try to take some advantage. So I think that'll be the first real proper showdown of the tour, at least on paper. You know, that first week before we get there there's loads of chances for surprise. But, uh, you know, Paul, as soon as you see Paul mentioned, you know you're in for a, an absolutely classic Pyrenean stage and, and this'll be one of those. And this is another one where Christian
1: Prudhomme has tried to be creative with what are traditional um, stages and traditional climbs in in the tour, where we're seeing a, a, a new call for for the first time this year, the Orquête de Ancazan and it's um one that, as I say, we've we've never seen before, and the riders will have probably never have have tackled before.
0: Oh, I guarantee all the head guys will have tackled it before. Um, you know, there will be those scenes where there's, there's snow up the road and they're still out there riding their bike. Um, they won't, won't have raced in it before in the Tour, but uh, the, the preparation will have been done, I think. And this isn't a summit finish. We've got a 15-kilometre
1: descent into Luchon.
0: And normally I would say that that neuters it. But think about the stages where we've seen, you know, people take their their, their lives and their race in their hands on descent this year. Um, you know, you've got people who can descend like stones who will try and put people like Chris Froome, who goes downhill well, you know, but he's, he's not of the Valley, will see the really strong descenders amongst the GC guys try to put pressure on the other folk. So I'm actually not disappointed because the descents that there are are short, punchy, you know, it's not the last climb 40 kilometres before the end with 30 kilometres of flat road. It's actually a climb where you can make a break, you know, where you can bridge to a teammate you've sent up before and then actually on the descent, make the race, make the gap. So Prudence I think he's been clever and I think we're going to see some absolutely brilliant racing because of it
1: Now on to stage 9 which takes us into Spain uh, going to Arculus and has only been in the Tour twice uh, 1997 when Jan Ulrich accompanied by EPO romped up it and then in 2009 when Brice Filou attacked his fellow breakaway companions to to take the win there
0: um, I I really remember Ulrich. I mean, it's such a such a strong memory, because uh, at that point there was still the debate about who was the leader of the telecom team. You know, Biarnaríss had won the previous year, um, and Ulrich had come to the tour young and incredibly strong, and. Apparently there was a a discussion in the team and it was decided whoever was strongest on the the stage into Archelaus would get the the team support. And, of course, it it was young young Jan Ulrich who was away with with Richard Varonk and there's, you know, the famous uh, negotiation for the stage where, you know... Money was offered and refused. So, you know, this is, although it's only been in twice, there's a lot of history here, a lot of history uh, in terms of my memories. And I'm really looking forward to it. And Dora's a tiny wee place, but I mean, it's, it's nothing but climbs, but climbs in supermarkets. So, Arcalis, um, it's not actually a really, really severe climb. It's just really long. Uh, 20, yeah, 22 kilometres
1: uh, yeah. to, to the finish. And it's just an uphill slog all the way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I'm going to come out with a cliche, aren't I? Uh, we're going to see some GC guys' hopes just go up in smoke here. You know, this is the point where we've had a couple of days in the Pyrenees, their legs are starting to get tired, they've had to go through the first nervous week. We're going to see one or two GC guys in absolute tears at the end of this stage.
1: And again, I, I mentioned the fact that the Pyrenees seem to come very, very early in this year's edition. We've got Mont Ventoux on stage 12, which, which, seem, which seems a, a curiously premature place to, to be put in the iconic Clayton. But it's, I think, been put there specifically because it's July the twelfth, uh, July the 14th, I beg your pardon, and it's Bastille Day.
0: Absolutely. You know, people like uh, Thibaut Pinot are going to be absolutely gagging for this stage. You know, um... Famously, you know, this is the stage where, after the the kerfuffle with uh, Pantani, uh, Lance Armstrong said Pas de cadeau," and there will be no gifts on this day. You know, there there will be absolutely, you know, tooth and nail fights from the French riders to try and win. Their biggest problem is that this is also a really important GC day. So if you're French and you want to win this, um, unless you're in with a shout, and people like, you know, Pino and Bardi may well be, you know, they may well still be in contention. But if you're not one of those guys, you're going to have to be in a breakaway because once we hit those, you know, those absolutely legendary slopes and we emerge from the trees onto that moonscape, it'll be the GC guys trying to win the race.
1: So on then to the first of two individual time trials in this year's race Uh, the first coming at stage 13 directly after Mont Ventoux and that's from Bourg saint Andial to La Caverne du Pont d'Arc which is it's only 37 kilometres long now those who aren't exactly fond of TTs at least can have the fascinating and gorgeous scenery to, to be watching as the riders pass through the Gauze de
0: l'Ardeche. I'm really interested in the TTs this year, and, and not just because, you know, I'm a TT nutter. Um, we've seen Nairo Quintana develop. He, he was always quite a strong time trialist, but he's really developed it this year, you know, looking very, very strong when he races against the clock. We've seen Francis de make huge strides as they, you know, pay attention to detail and, and get into the wind tunnel. So a lot of these guys who might previously have looked at a time trial with sheer dread are actually going to be quite strong contenders. And the day after round 2, who knows how their legs are going to go? You know, if they've had a brutal day's racing the day before trying to get up the mountain in Provence, we could see some very, very surprising results here. So I think it's really cleverly paced or really cleverly placed again by Christian Prudhomme. Smart move adds a wee bit of intrigue that we might not have had, but it's still going to be won by you know one of the specialists, your Tony Martins or your Cancellaras or Tom de Milan, isn't it?
1: Well, I mean, you say that, but it's not exactly one for the, the traditional guys, although I think you're right that these people will be the ones that are contesting the, the stage itself. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think the GC guys will be that far behind because it's not a flat parkour. It's certainly one that you would say would be for a more ruler type of, of TT rider. Uh, and that only plays into to the hands of trying to snatch more time in general classification.
0: Yeah, and, you know, if everybody's knackered, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see, you know, a Chris Froome take this. If, if the edge has been taken off the pure, you know, pace merchants like Tony Martin, then this is exactly the kind of parkour where you could see, you know, a Chris Froome or a Richie Port, who's fantastic against the clock in his day, uh, m- make their mark and maybe even snatch the the stage win. I still lean a bit towards the specialists, though. So before
1: we even get to to the Alps, where the Arguably, the GC will be decided in this year's race. There is a fascinating stage 15 from bourg bresse to Collot.
0: Would you look at the profile? I mean, seriously, it's like, uh, you know, somebody's taking it's like, it's like Jaws
1: sh- uh, Jawbone.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, it's terrifying. It's, you know, call after call after call, first cat, you know, second cat, third cat, third cat... Over the, the Grand Colombie, uh, you know, which is a, an oak cat climb, and then the, the Lassets do Grand Colombie, uh, which is a first cat climb, this is the kind of stage where you're not going to see the massive time gaps due to, you know, a, a brutal climb like Two, where somebody will crack. This is going to be a war of attrition that day. You know, you're going to see aggressive um, and, and really, really, you know, almost hand-to-hand fighting between the GC guys. It's its where you have to pay attention or the race will just go. You know, you could look up and suddenly, you know, one of your one of your um, opponents is, is a minute up the road and you've got to fight. So, you know, this isn't a big headline stage in terms of a massive mountain, although there is, you know, an oak cat in there. This is one where all day you're just going to have to pay attention and it's mentally as hard as it is physically, I think.
1: And not a, a, a desperately long stage either, 159 kilometres. So they're packing a hell of a lot into what is arguably still quite a short distance for a, a Grand Tour
0: stage. Yeah, we've seen what happens with short stages this year, haven't we? I mean, every mm. time there's been a short stage, we've had fantastic racing. So, you know, this is this is one of the stages where... The, the John Galloway sicky note can be printed off from the website and given to your employer.
1: <laughs> They're like last year, the final showdown comes in the Alps, but with some new climbs and new routes being showcased as the riders will be looking to secure
0: their positions before Paris. It's, uh, it's quite a final weekend, isn't it? I mean, you've got some absolutely classic names in there. Um, for me... You know, the, the time trial is is absolutely astonishing. Um, it's an uphill time trial with a fairly hefty downhill finish. Um, so, you know, I, my tech side's going to be excited to see what their equipment choices are to deal with, you know, to deal with a, a relatively flat run and then a really hard uphill bit, and then, you know, a downhill finish, a swoop into the finish at high speed. Uh, but, but this is this is a time trial where, All bets are off now. You know, we're in the final few days of the Tour de France. Um, You might see a guy who hoped to win the GC try and take this time trial as a consolation. Or you might still see seconds between, you know, all of the the guys who are going for the win in Paris. And this will be, you know, just absolute everything on the road. Nothing left behind to try and get time. So, you know, it's... I love a time trial anyway. And there are two time trials in this race, neither of which are particularly, you know, long What I do think they are is perfectly placed. You know, they punctuate those hard stages beautifully, and we're going to see people absolutely at the limit here. It's going to be fantastic theatre.
1: And just before that I think there's another crucial stage because the, the, the individual time trial is stage 18 and you're right at only 17 kilometres and mostly uphill it is both fascinating and crucial for for the overall. I think it will still be very very tight by the time we get to stage 18. Well, 17 stage, they go
0: into Switzerland don't they?
1: Yes yes stage 17 comes after the, the, the rest day. It goes from Bern to Fino Emerson. Now this has never been used in the two before but it made its ASO debut back in the uh, 2014 Criterium de Dauphine
0: Yeah, I mean this is um, you know, that you have to look at these days in the Alps uh, as, as a block and this is after the rest day, you know, the old cliche how are the legs going to re- respond you've gone for a ride the day before are you feeling blocked, are you refreshed have you recovered on that day off do you get in the bike and suddenly discover nothing's working properly and you're feeling quite strong in, in the race as a whole and suddenly you're losing three minutes? Uh, combined with the fact that you know they haven't raced over this terrain a great deal, there's going to be a lot of nervous, sleepless nights after the rest of think like, looking forward to this race into Switzerland.
1: Mm. Uh, so looking to, to the penultimate stage of the tour, stage 20 from Mijève to Morzine, short and brutal at only 146 kilometres and features the infamous Jouplin.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, you've, you've had the time trial, you've had... Uh, the, the really quite difficult uh, day on stage 19 uh, And then the final showdown um, You know, you look at it You've got the, the Col de la Colombie uh, The Col de la Ramaz And then the Col de jupon. Now Morzine, um, it, it's famous for a number of reasons. You know the the lunchbox with with the blood for uh, for Floyd Landis, and also you know for for Floyd winning back the tour after he you know everything appeared away from him. It's also famous as the climb where we saw that rare thing a Lance Armstrong crack you know where he he just didn't have it it's a brutal brutal climb um and you know for the last climb of the tour i'm, I'm thinking it's virgin on sadistic to tell you the truth
1: <laughs> but it's not a, it's not a, a summit finish ag- ag- again um and we often criticize Grand tours for for having races where all the work and and all the the time that that has been gained by riders attacking is is somewhat nullified by the fact that we have a, a run into the finish. But I don't think this will will be that. I no, think this is a, a fascinating and technical run into the finish, which is just as difficult in terms of your your awareness on the bike and your strength on the bike as it
0: is going up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I love a summit finish. Uh, as much as the next man, but it's impossible for me to imagine a summit finish in the Jou Plan. It's all about that final brutal climb followed by that weeping descent into Morseine. and you've usually got groups all over the road, you know, and the the camera follows and flits between group and group and are they going to catch on and then you get into the barriers and you're into the street and you can see the people, you know, 50 yards 100 yards behind you But they're just not Going to get back That finish into Morzine is, is an integral part Of the shoe plan experience And what a great way To end the tour Before the procession Into Paris Oh, well, you got me all excited No Dave. it's easily Just thinking about it I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, I hate yeah. to say it I'm gagging for it mate <laughs> <laughs> oh, Whoa
1: whoa whoa We've got 21 stages To be covering Over the next three weeks Don't be using All your gagging for it Even in the preview we are strictly Rationed here now moving on, what about the contenders in this year's event? Well, the lineup is stellar and has a, a big four again of Chris Froome, Alberto Contador, Vincenzo Nibali, and Nairo Quintana going head to head for the GC.
0: Well, they've all had wee bragging rights, haven't they? They've all won things this year, uh, although none of it is the tour. You know, it, it's part of the preparation, so we can't say, you know, Nairo's beaten Chris and Alberto, so he's the big favourite. Um, for me, Froome is still clearly um, the favourite. I was chatting to, to Killian after we recorded the reading room the other day, and he actually reckons it's the year where Nairo Quintana will step up uh, because, you know, he's improved his time trialling, and uh, he, he thinks he's, he'll have learned from the fact that he lost time by being an attentive uh, you know, like last year when uh, he was mm. taking time back at the end from Froome. But for me, Chris Froome still looks, you know, he was really strong in the Dauphiné. He's a clever rider who knows how to pace himself. So Froome's the big favourite. Team Sky are, you know, Team Sky. They're the modern US postal in terms of their ability to, to string a race out. Um, and they'll use that mercilessly. You know, people like Ian Stannard um, will will just be the, the you know the diesel at the front who is the launch pad for Chris Froome. But this year, it's going to be very far from a walkover for Froome. I think.
1: No, I would agree with that because I would. I was going to counter what you were saying there about Team Sky being Team Sky and, and knowing how to to control a race and and how to set their version of events out before everybody else. But I I think this year it. It's been another step in that progression of teams and other riders not being quite as fearful of that that tactic anymore. Mm-hmm. We saw at the Dauphiné and and probably more so at the Tour de Suisse, where Team Sky looked very shaky in in places. Now I think you're right to say that, that Chris Froome has come as as the out and out favourite here. He's the defending champion and he has talked about his his own uh, desire not to fade like he did in last year's mm-hmm. e- event where Nairo Quintana was starting to come good. And as I said earlier in the show, and indeed wrapping up last year's tour, I felt Nairo left it just, you know, a minute or so too late mm-hmm. to to be making his, his move. But when we look at riders like Geraint Thomas, for example, in the Tour de Suisse, who you rightly, John, had said, was looking very tired and and not the the captain and, and, you know, chief lieutenant that, that Froome would need in this year's tour, that gives me a wee bit of cause for concern for not Chris Froome, but the whole of Team Sky performing as as a unit.
0: No, I'd agree with that. And that, that, there's an interesting thing there because, you know, if if we think Team Sky are slipping a wee bit, which there's been quite a few indications that they are, um, you know they may turn that around completely for the tour, of course. You know because that's always been you know the big objective since you know since day one for them. But if you you add to that the fact that think back to the Giro, um, movie star were very far from the the tactical disaster that they've often been in the past. You know think of the times they've left Alejandro Valverde, you know stranded by the side of the road as the echelons form or whatever. Think yeah. of the times they've missed a move. You know and for me that would be a big big handicap for Nairo Quintana. Yeah. But this year they've looked far, far more credible. You know, they've been at the front when they needed to be for Valverde. Uh, they've looked like a cohesive and well-drilled squad. So if, if Sky slip a wee bit and Movistar step up a wee bit, which is what we've seen this year, um, then, you know, it's it's a more interesting race for the teams as well as the individuals at the heads of them.
1: And I I also don't get the, the impression or the that kind of underlying worry when looking at Movistar this year that we're... About to see Alejandro Valverde put his own ambitions ahead of Nairo Quintana, who's the the nominated team leader for for the race. I kind of feel that Alejandro is now very much you know riding for the team he's Mm -hmm. he's done what he needed needed to do this year he's had a a successful um 2016 thus far and i'm not getting a sense that there's any i'm going to undercut my young team rival here i think Alejandro's is playing a proper team role
0: yeah I'd, i'd entirely agree with that um he seems to me like a man who's at peace if you like with the fact that he's you know he's achieving what he what he's capable of. He's got a, a fantastic Palmares, and you know I don't think he. Th- I think he's accepted. He's never going to be a, a winner of the Tour de France barring extraordinary circumstance. So yeah, I think you're right. All the noises are, all the indications are that he's going in genuinely as a, a lieutenant for Nairo Quintana, and that's a big big boost for Nairo Quintana because Valverde, just as with you know Richie Port. When he was at Team Sky. Valverde is a potent card for Movie Star to play. You know, the other teams can't let him go up the road because if, you know, they're marking Nairo to the point that Valverde gets a few minutes, then suddenly the whole circumstance changed. So he's he's a very useful asset for Movie Star and a great lieutenant for Nairo Quintana. I, I mean I hope they work together as a team super, super well, which is all you know, it's what all the indications are.
1: Now, Alberto Contador, you said earlier on, perhaps controversially in some circles, that you feel he's a step below the, the out-and-out favourites. I mean, another Tour win would cap off an already stellar, if at times controversial, mm-hmm. career. Is he past his supless best, though?
0: I think we'll see him very close in the climbs. I really do. I mean, he's, he's, he's shown he's still got his climbing legs. He's... He's danced up those climbs with a style that you and I both love to watch this year. Um, And he's looked really, really strong. But compared to, you know, the pre-beef sandwich days, his time trial isn't what it was. You know, it just isn't. And when you have time trialists as strong as Chris Froome, Richie Port, Nairo Quintana, then that's, you know, that's a point where he's maybe going to suffer a wee bit. Because... I, I think it's entirely credible that he'll finish with those absolutely tip-top GC guys on the you know on the climbs. I think we'll see lots of climbs fought out between you know Froome and Quintana and you know maybe Richie Porte and, and Alberto Contador and he'll be strong on the climbs. I just think the edge has gone off his time trial and compared to the guys that he's got to beat, and that's why he needs to be a bit creative and maybe snatch time elsewhere to make up for what I think will be a deficiency in the time trials. And he had a cold, allegedly. I he did
1: <laughs> last week. And most of the Spanish nationals. <laughs> I mean, I, someone asked me about the, the the Spanish. I beg your pardon. Just the nationals in in general, and and the fact that say Chris Froome wasn't riding the British, and this how somehow makes him less British than 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 somebody else. Blah 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 blah. But I mean, the the, the nationals week really does come too close to the Tour de France for for some guys, and. I kind of felt, well, why really should Alberto Contador be any different from Chris Froome and just say, no, look, the tour is the big goal for me. I'm just going to give this one a
0: miss. Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. Um, I think the Spanish are really rabid about their national championships. Um, you know, when I've chatted to, to Spanish subscribers, they put a lot of stock into the fact that you know you're riding in your country's jersey. Um, even more so, I think than you know we do. Not if you happen to ride for Movie Star though. <laughs> um, So I think Alberto Contador, it was a bit of a PR cold, you know, he didn't want to ride the national champs because it was too close to the tour, but he didn't want to be uh, pilloried by his countrymen for, you know, not showing the the proper Spanish Spanish spirit and and getting stuck in. So, yeah, I think it was a, a tactical cold.
1: Now, Vincenzo Nibali, the Giro d'Italia winner, said he's only coming to the Tour to support Fabio Aru. However, the younger of the Astana men hasn't exactly shone of late with a a disappointing performance in the Dauphiné, saved only by uh, an impressive stage win, which will give the Vuelta winner some encouragement.
0: Um, Yeah, but it was a stage win that didn't come through pure, you know, crushing strength. that came through him being clever and the other people letting him drift off the front. Remember, he didn't even really attack. He just kind of... I don't know if he drifted off the front or the other folk drifted back. He suddenly found himself alone and then made the most of it. Um, I think Astana have got a serious problem because... I don't think Vincenzo Nibali. I genuinely don't think he ever intended to come to this tour. I think he thought that Fabio Aru would be uh, the you know the, the sole leader of Astana, and he would have other objectives this year. The problem is Vincenzo wasn't actually impressive enough, um, you know, strength wise, uh, to 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 look like the rider who. Crushed in the tour a couple of years ago. Yeah, you know, he won the Giro, but it was as much because of other people falling back than him being strong. So I think they've had to bring him because, you know, he's not quite where he needs to be. You know, and that's a measure of the the class of the man that you can win a Giro and folk can still go, actually, you're not really on top of your game, Vincenzo. And Aru is nowhere near where he needs to be. So Astana have to have a backdrop. I think Astana have got problems in this tour. And I'll be amazed if if Fabio Aru is anywhere near impressive enough to be, even on the podium, to tell you the truth. Uh, But Vincenzo Nabao, you can never write him off, can you?
1: Well, where does all of that then leave his stated ambition of being here a support for um, Fabio Aru and then moving on to to the Olympics where he hopes to to win gold is Alexander vinikurov essentially putting him under the the caution saying No, look, we we need to do well in in the Tour de France. The Olympics are going to have to be something that you'll have to put to one side because Fabio hasn't stepped up in the way that we expected him to. So we're going for a a kind of two-pronged attack with you being up there and and going for it regardless of how that, that affects your Olympic ambitions. And we'll just have to see how Fabio Aru gets on. Because that, that seems to me a, a, as being something that, that would worry Vincenzo Nibali if he really wants an Olympic gold.
0: Yeah, the, the other thing is he's, he's incredibly headstrong. So, you know, do you, know, you remember I talked to the, the head of the show about uh, Froome might, might entirely bias his form towards the back end of the race to try and hold it through for the Olympics? We may actually see Vincenzo Nibali do the same, or Vincenzo might just go and ride his own race and see what happens. You know, he, he's a man who I don't think is easily dictated to, even if you're the the, the flat cap monster that is uh, Vinokarov. Uh, so I, we'll see. I mean, Astana are the one team where I've got a clear picture in my mind what's going to happen with you know BMC and with Francis de Gea and Sky. Astana, it's going to have to be played out on the road because I'll be amazed if Aru's good enough to take uh, the leadership of that team and I'm not sure Nabali wants it. So fascinating stuff. And you can never discount the last-minute Astana tactical blitzkrieg
1: that we've seen be so effective in in recent
0: tours. Yeah, but it's their trademark now, isn't it? I mean, it really mm-hmm. is. It's what they do. Is uh, you know, it, again, it's like no one expects the Spanish Inquisition except it's the Kazakh one. You know, you think oh, he's got no chance of winning, and then suddenly you've got the leaders' jersey one. It's uh, it's a good trick if you can do it.
1: Mm. Now, elsewhere, we have the potential for some low-level Eno Le Mans shenanigans in the shape of Richie Port and TJ van Garderen vying for team supremacy at BMC.
0: Richie Porte's got it. Um, yeah, I, I know you argue with me about it, and I know I've, I've had a lot of uh, colourful discussions with listeners about this via email and, and on Twitter. Um, I don't think TJ has it. You know, I just don't. I think he's a really solid... Um, a minus rider, you know, not quite at that top level. Uh, Richie Port I think is entirely capable of being at the top level in terms of his abilities. You know, we've seen him in the past look stronger than than Chris Froome on occasion. He's time trial beautifully remember up the Caldez and Paris Nice, um, he was really really strong and you know, in, in the Dauphiné, when he wasn't, you know, forgetting that he wasn't Chris Froome's teammate anymore. <laughs> um, so, I mean, he's the complete package. The big problem is he always has a bad day. You know, and if he can get over having that jour songs, then I I think there's no doubt whatsoever in my mind that he's the, the sensible guy for BMC to, to back. The problem is, just as we know that he usually has a bad day, his team knows that he's always, you know, up until now has had one bad day. And that's why I think there's... There's still that uncertainty about the leadership. It, being sensible, looking at it, you'd choose Port every day of the week to be that team leader. The problem is you can't rely on him um, because of those bad days. Uh, he's, you know, he's only just learning how to ride as a sole leader in in GC, and that's why TJ's still getting enough leeway to to make this even a discussion. I'm, I don't know what's. BMC, I think Port's going to get it, but you know, I, I don't believe in them, and the problem is neither do they.
1: I think all that's that's fair, and despite you saying we argue about this, I think looking back at the the Dauphine and the Tour de Suisse this year, which were two completely different races, different weather conditions, of course, different parkour, different opposition. So it's maybe unfair to compare or try and compare these mm-hmm. as apples to apples. But yes, of course, Port looked really strong at the Dauphine. I mean, well, T.J. finished. A, an average six, which I think is probably flattering him somewhat given the performance that that he had there. But he certainly didn't seem anywhere near as animated towards the front end of the race than his Australian teammates. Mm -hmm. So I think Richie Port should have supremacy at at BMC. It's whether that supremacy at, at the team is strong enough to put him up alongside the other guys who will be vying for the overall general classification at this race. Now, I think Richie Port. You know, probably in marked contrast to what we said about him last year, where after crashing out of the the Giro, we said this would probably be his last chance at, at team leadership and indeed... Uh, the, the the chance to, to vie for a win at a, at a three week Grand Tour I think this is probably his best chance up until now mm-hmm. it's whether the wheels can stay on the Richie Port wagon for, for the whole of three weeks which I think is still a big question mark over him and as you I think have rightly pointed out has always been a big question mark for Richie Port
0: yeah every single time I mean he just always has a bad day I notice uh, that he's, he's now having to convince journalists that he's not going to work with Chris Freeman's guy the day before the tour. Um, so, I mean, that's still dogging him from, from the Dauphiné. Uh, Do you know, actually, I think that incident at the Dauphiné was probably good for
1: him because it, it underlined maybe even uh, an unconscious bias that he had on the road. And it may very well have been that it was just a deal, even an unspoken one deal done on the day to ensure that the race went the way that he and... Chris Froome wanted it mm-hmm. to go, but I think having been bitten so heavily by that will have done him the world of good. It should now show him that he should ride his own race and remember what jersey he's wearing for the next three weeks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it showed him actually that Chris Froome. It's, you know they're definitely close friends off the bike. We we've seen you know they really get on well. Uh, they're clearly pleased to see each other whenever you know they, they run into each other off the bike. But I think it showed just what a killer instinct Chris Froome has. You know he he is. You know, we can criticise his, uh, you know, his interviews, we can criticise and laugh at his, his riding style, which uh, our chum in our ring once famously described as someone pushing a shopping cart up a hill whilst talking on a mobile phone jammed against their shoulder. Um, but what you can't criticise is his competitive spirit. And I think that, you know, the, the criticism that Port got at the Dauphine as a result of appearing to collaborate with Chris Froome will have uh, hammered home to him that, you know, once once the pedals start turning, there there's no friendship left. You know, you you might get it occasionally, but if it's a win at stake, Chris Froome is going to take you to the cleaners every time if you give him as much as an inch. Uh, so yeah, it'll be good for Port, but again, we come back to, you know, when's the bad day going to happen?
1: I think I also described, and if I didn't, then I'm about to describe his riding style as a praying mantis trying to rape a paperclip. Yeah, that's pretty good
0: too, as well. Yeah, that we could go for that. We could have a competition <laughs> for the best description of Christopher's <laughs> riding style, couldn't we? <laughs>
1: hey, if I was as, as effective as that on a bike, I wouldn't care how ridiculous I looked. So we've mentioned probably the out and out favourites for for the race. As as there any other guys who we should be looking at, if the unexpected happens within the race and the the out-and-out
0: favourites falter in some way. I've got a a cheeky wee belief that we're going to see a real step up from Thiebaud Pino because he's been saying, oh, I'm not at the same level as the other guys, you know, I've, I've improved, but I'm just not there. And I think he's trying to deflect um you know, attention from himself. We've seen he's he's got over that fear of descending he had. He's a really good descender now. We've seen the strides he's made in time trial and um you know it, it's a it's a French tour. Think about that Von Tour on Bastille Day. We talked about it during the show. So I think he's worth keeping a wee eye on. And the other person who you know he he failed um to, to hammer home his super strong performance in the well last year at the Giro. And we saw him, you know, I was really upset when he had to pull out of that race. But we, you know, we still got young Tom Dumoulin. I don't know how he's going to do. We know he's a really strong time trialist. We saw how well he climbed in the Vuelta before Astana took him apart last year. Uh, So, you know, there's there's a lot of guys just bubbling under. You know, Roman Bardi's been really good for for Ashes de So, yeah, we've got the four favourites. Arguably five, if you count Aru, who I've been really dismissive of, which um, probably means he's going to win it, actually, going by my my prognostication record this year. But, you know, there's Maybe half a dozen people underneath who, you know, if they manage to hang with the big guys and put in a really strong performance on one or two days, could could bring home a surprise.
1: And you haven't mentioned Warren Barguil there. You know, just thinking about uh, Giant Alpceson mm. and and Tom Milan. I mean, obviously, the Frenchman's going to go in as as team leader in in the French race. But I think there's an interesting dynamic at play there. But but going back to uh, Thibaut Pino, I think the other thing he needs to get over is his petulance when it comes to things not going his oh, way. That
0: was funny as hell last year. Wasn't it?
1: it was, you know, but it, it didn't do him any favors, and arguably. Counted more towards his his downfall in the race than the incident itself. I think if he'd have been a lot more calm under the pressure that he was undoubtedly under, things might have. Gone a wee bit better for him.
0: Yeah, and I think he's learned from that. I think he's making very, very restrained noises about the race this year. Um, and if he can, if he can take that into the race and stay a bit calmer, I think he he got upset last year because he was doing so well. Actually, you know, almost to, exactly, to his yeah. own surprise. And I think he put himself under a lot of pressure because he was doing well. And at that point, when something went wrong, that pressure just you know burst out of his ears, and he started throwing his bike and bouncing off the road and all sorts of nonsense. He's a year older and a year smarter. I, I really think we're going to see maybe a career-defining performance from from him in this race. And I'm, you know, I, I like it. He seems like a likable bloke. I believe that uh,
1: he's getting anger management lessons from Nasser Bahani at the minute. Oh, don't just
0: don't. <laughs> <laughs> what? <a tech. laughs> You
1: know. Well, I think everybody else in the Peloton will be... In fact, here's a conspiracy theory for you. The rest of the Peloton have got together, paid a couple of guys to pretend that they're drunk and egg Nasser Bahani on to get into a fight so that he would end up pulling out of the Tour de France and ensuring that everyone else has a clean run into the finish line and there's no crazy lines being, being ridden by the Frenchman.
0: I tell you, I mean... That, I think the best tweet I saw in the day, you know, where where it was announced that Nasser Bahani was not going to be riding the Tour de France was actually from Daniel Freib. And he summed up the situation perfectly by saying it's hard to imagine a team whose Tour de France is more defined by one rider, you know, than Kofidis with Nasser Bahani. You know, they've got not a hope in hell of the GC. Their only chance of getting, you know, the kind of publicity that they crave, that they want the sponsors in their home tour is, you know, Nasser Buhani and through some stupid thing where... He's a boxer, you know, so he goes out and lamps somebody in some hotel in the middle of the night. He's now out of his biggest objective of the year, and his team are left scrabbling for a plan B when, you know, they had really high hopes of, of getting a really good publicity coup from NASA. They got publicity, just know the good kind. I, I just think, what an idiot.
1: Exactly that. Now, from the point of view of the neutral, going back to the GC battle, this should be an absolutely fantastic race. Uh, Chris Froome making it three would put him in a very elite club. Contador, despite saying he will race for another two years, might feel that this is his best chance of winning another tour. Naro Quintana winning his first would be absolutely fantastic to see. As I mentioned earlier, we should never discount the Astana tactical blitzkrieg. So... uh, there's a lot of, of elements that will come together, I think, to making this a brilliant race to, to watch. But who are you going to put your money on?
0: I'm actually going to agree with Killian and I'm going to go for Nairo Quintana. Well, um, oh, damn you! Because I think Chris Froome on his own, uh, if he gets everything right, uh, common sense says yes, um, he's, he's going to win. But I think just as you mentioned earlier, I think we're going to see that that moment of weakness you know that hesitation from Team Sky, um, and we we won't see the kind of idiocy from Movie Star that we've seen in, in previous years. And he seems to me—I mean, it's hard to tell what the hell's going on in his head, you know, because he's got that that mask. Where you know, when he's got cycling kit on, you have no idea if he's happy or not. But he's looked confident. You know, he hasn't raced much, but when he has raced, you know, he's he's been incredibly effective. His time trial looks strong enough, so just, although my head says Chris Froome, I, I genuinely think Nairo's going to take it this year.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, the, looking back at his his race results this year, it's been solid. Volta, Catalonia in March, Tour de mm. Romandie in May, and then the route to Sud in, in June there. Mm. So, he hasn't put a foot wrong and has looked more and more confident. I Came back, obviously, from the winter in, in Colombia and has, has looked really, really impressive. And mm-hmm. I, I think, I mean, all the guys are saying it and, and maybe rightly so, that this is the toughest tour for years and probably the closest tour for years. We're talking about Chris Froome, the defending champion, being the out-and-out favourite. I don't know if that's actually the case. I think it's a lot closer than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the fact that Chris Froome is the defending champion and hasn't done, hasn't also put a, a foot wrong, makes him in everyone's mind the guy to beat. But I, th- I think it's very, very close. Certainly between him and and nairo Quintana, and I think that Bert actually might have a trick or two up his sleeve, which will put him more in contention than his his age would, would suggest. So I, I'm looking forward to an absolute belter of a
0: tour. i tell but- you what's really interesting, actually, for folk of our generation. You know, I'm 10 years older than you, but we, we kind of grew up watching the same races, you know, because when we sit down and talk, it's the same images, you know, Robert Miller away with Pedro Delgado and all that kind of stuff that, that come to mind. It was only when I sat down and started working on this and talking to Killian, who, of course, was his usual stat nutter, uh, before we started recording the reading show, the last person to actually defend to a tour title, if you discount, you know, he who must not be named, was Miguel Indurain. You know, I mean, who, that's who a, arguably shouldn't I, be named I, either. Absolutely. But. <laughs> you know, if you if you listen to Tom Davy or whatever, um, yeah, he shouldn't be counted either. But that's a staggering amount of time ago. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's we grew so, so twenty used, years. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we, you and I, grew so used to seeing massive blocks of wins that it seems almost the norm to defend the tour. But if you actually look at the stats, it's a measure of just how hard this race is. You know, it's, so it would be, actually be quite a big thing for Froome to do them back to back.
1: Well, thank you for joining us today as we looked forward with probably more enthusiasm than is seemly for scotsman to the 2016 Tour de France. Join us again ooh, tomorrow <laughs> for the start of the Daily Grand Boucle Odyssey in another edition of The Velocast.